We open the Bible to John chapter 19. We will read together verses 1 through 18. Where we have the inspired Apostle John's record of the events of Good Friday morning. John chapter 19 verses 1 through 18. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. Thus far we read in the scriptures. On the basis of Holy Scripture, we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, We are up to Lord's Day 15.
Question 37. What dost thou understand by the words, he suffered? That he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so, by his passion, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? That he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? Yes, there is. For thereby, I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me, for the death of the cross was accursed of God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Catechism continues leading us through the Apostles' Creed. And in Lord's Day 15, we come to the first line of the fourth article, which reads that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. And that first word, suffered, is the leading idea and the focus of Lord's Day 15. Lord's Day 16 is going to look more closely at Jesus' death, his burial, and his descent into hell. Lord's Day 15 wants us to ponder something of the depths of Jesus' sufferings throughout his life. Jesus came suffer. Remember, it was mentioned last week in the introduction that this section of the catechism is leading us through the different stages of Jesus' state of humiliation. The state of humiliation is simply the the state of guilt before the law of God that Jesus assumed to himself. He came into the world to be our sin bearer. That's how he saves us, by bearing our sins and paying for them. And so, when Jesus became incarnate of the, Holy, of the Holy Ghost and was born of the Virgin Mary, he entered into that state of humiliation. He took upon himself not only our flesh, but having taken upon himself our flesh, he also took to himself the guilt of all of the sins of God's elect people. So that, though he was sinless and innocent in himself, he stood before the law of God guilty, guilty for our sins. Our sins, for which he would pay by his suffering and death. And so Jesus' entire life is divided into different stages of his humiliation. His lowly birth, his lifelong suffering, his death on the cross, his burial, his descent into hell. And that outline of the stages of his life is not strictly chronological, but focuses on the gradual intensification of his sufferings throughout his life, culminating in his death Upon the cross. And thus, Jesus' whole life 
can be summarized and described with the two words, he suffered. If you want to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did, the answer is not that he was merely some great man with religious ideas that changed the world. It's not even this, that he was a a powerful teacher who began a new religion that would sweep through the world and bring hope and joy to many. Jesus is a great teacher, yes. But the heart of his work was suffering. Suffering for his people. And it is his suffering for his people that accomplishes their salvation. It is his suffering for his people that redeems his people from everlasting suffering, which otherwise they would have to endure under the just judgment of God. Jesus was a great teacher. But above all, Jesus was our sin bearer. And it is by his bearing of sin, his suffering, that he saves us. And so that's what we are going to look at this morning. The theme for the sermon is simply those two words that summarize Jesus' life. He suffered. And because Jesus took upon himself our flesh and became man, he lived a real human life in time and in history, in real places. And that's recounted to us in the Gospels, how Jesus lived and ministered and suffered In the land of Israel. For his people. So our three points. Follow his life of suffering. We divide his suffering under the headings of various places where he suffered. He suffered in Galilee. And then we're going to focus on his life in ministry. He suffered at Gabbatha. Under Pontius Pilate. And his suffering came to its height. Its peak. At Golgotha. The hill of the skull. He suffered. Jesus suffered. And the catechism uses this language to describe his sufferings. That he all the time that he lived on earth. Suffered. From his birth. Through his ministry in Galilee and also in Judea. Jesus suffered. Now, before we look at his sufferings throughout his life in ministry, we go back to what we learned about in Lord's Day 14. We go back to Bethlehem again, because that's where Jesus' suffering started, all the way back there in Bethlehem. Lord's Day 14 explained to us the truth of Jesus' incarnation. And when we looked at Lord's Day 14, we focused on the wonder, the marvel of that miracle, God the Son coming down into this world and assuming to himself our flesh, taking upon himself our human nature, being conceived of the Virgin Mary and born like any other child, he became truly man. And that is a wonder. But now we look back at Jesus coming into our flesh, his birth, and we look at it now through the lens of Lord's Day 15. And we look at it in a new light. Jesus' birth was the beginning of his suffering. Jesus' birth was humiliation for him. 
For at his birth, God the Son entered our miserable world, clothed himself in our flesh, and in doing so, he gave up his abode in heaven. He set aside the perfection of joy and glory that he enjoyed there to come here. Here. And if there's a word that captures life here, suffering is one that will quickly come to mind. He came into this world full of suffering. God the Son, before whom the seraphim sang, Holy, 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 and they sang it to him because he is the second of those three holies. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit, the one only true God. He lays that aside and becomes lowly and despised. A child born in Bethlehem, of whom very little notice is taken. For whom there is not a palace waiting. For whom there is not an entourage of the most honorable men to see to his every need. But he's born in a stable. He's born in Bethlehem rejected. There's no room even in the inn for him. And that signifies what his whole life is going to be. Rejected of men. Cast out. Scorned. Though he is God in the flesh. Suffering. He took on our human nature. Sinless he was, and yet he took on our nature as it is now, meaning subject to the afflictions that are the consequence of sin. God, the Son, in our flesh, experienced sickness, he experienced pain, he experienced hunger, he experienced discomfort. That too belongs to the humiliation into which God the Son descended. He suffered. And then you consider Jesus' childhood. He was a real man. He grew up like any other child grew up. And though the Bible tells us little about Jesus' childhood, what it does tell us says much about his suffering. Matthew 2.13, when Jesus is very young, What must the Son of God in our flesh do? He must be taken by his mother Mary and by Joseph and flee into Egypt to escape the hungry sword of King Herod. He must live as an exile. Or you think of Luke 2 verse 49 when Jesus is but 12 years old. He's going about his father's business in Jerusalem. And what is his father's business? His father's business is the work of bearing the sin of his people. Even when Jesus was yet 12 years old, the shadow of the cross was looming over him. Suffering, suffering. You think of what it must have been like for the perfect son of God to grow up. In a world of suffering. In a sinful family. Perhaps we who are parents. Have asked the question. What would it have been like. To raise a child who is perfect. Who never sinned. That must have been especially difficult. And humbling for Joseph and Mary. Think about it from Jesus perspective. How hard and what suffering would have come. Being a perfect child. The son of God in the flesh. The sinless one. 
under the authority of fallen sinful parents like Joseph and Mary. And yet in Luke 2 verse 51, we are told that he was subject unto them. He submitted to them. He bore patiently with the faults and the sins of his earthly parents. Jesus knew better than anyone ever what it's like to be treated unfairly and to suffer wrong when he had done no wrong. Those are just some of the surface layers of Jesus' suffering. Then you go on in the gospel accounts which describe Jesus' life in ministry from the age of 30 to the time that he went to the cross. In his public ministry, what was it characterized by? Suffering. He was born in Bethlehem and there was no room for him in the inn. As Jesus went throughout Galilee, preaching the gospel, performing miracles, healing the sick, testifying that he is the Christ, there was no room for him in the hearts of men. Jesus of Nazareth, he was called Nazareth. That city in the Roman backwater of Galilee. Nazareth, that was known to be a place that nothing good can come from. In fact, in John 1 verse 46, Nathaniel expresses that commonly held opinion where he says, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Jesus humbles himself by descending into our world, taking on our flesh, and then he ties himself to a certain place. Not a glorious city like Rome or even Jerusalem, but he ties himself to the city of Nazareth, a place that fellow Galileans said, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Humility, shame, rejection. Then you think more specifically about what the Gospels say about Jesus' life and ministry. Right from the start, he's assaulted by the devil's temptations. Suffering. As the devil worked harder on Jesus than the devil has worked on any other. Hard he worked on Jesus to turn him from that path leading to the cross. And Jesus knew what stood at the end of his earthly journey. And how tempting those temptations must have been to go some other way to avoid Golgotha. And yet, Jesus, obedient to his father, steadfastly walked that path through Galilee. Ultimately to Golgotha. Prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 53 verse 3. Prophesied. That the promised seed of the woman. That the promised Messiah. Would be this. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we as it were hid our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him. Him not. He suffered. He suffered. And then you look at the end of his life as we read about it in John 19. The catechism says that all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God. And we'll get to that in a moment. But at the end of his life, we see that suffering intensifying, coming to its peak as he is falsely accused, as he is rejected by the church of his day, the leaders of the Jews, and sentenced 
unjustly by the Roman government of the day. Church and state unite against the Christ of God. He is shamed, he is scourged, he is condemned, and he is led to Golgotha to be crucified. The entire gospel story, every page, has written large upon it these words. He suffered. But now, what's the importance of all of these facts about Jesus' life? What's the significance of the suffering of Jesus Christ? Here we want to look specifically at the nature of Jesus' sufferings, and see that Jesus' suffering is something that is totally unique. Something that sets him apart from all of the other sufferers who populate this world that is marked by suffering. It's important to see that because there are people who read these first words of the article of the Apostles' Creed, he suffered, and they say, so what? What's so special about Jesus? He suffered. Okay. Everyone suffers. And perhaps people can be thought of, people in history who have suffered more from an earthly perspective. Some have said that. What's so significant about Jesus' suffering? Yes, he was born in a stable, rejected of men. But there have been some people born into this world who never had a roof. To call their own. Jesus was poor. But he didn't starve. Jesus didn't grow up an orphan. He grew up in the home of Joseph. Who was a just man. And Mary who was as godly a woman. As could be found in Israel. Yes he suffered sickness. The Bible never tells us about Jesus. Dealing with cancer. Or suffering from a stroke. Or some chronic disease. Perhaps you would say there are people who have endured much more physical pain than we see Jesus enduring on the pages of the gospel. What's so special about these words? He suffered. How is that any different from all of the other sufferers here in this world? Now we get to the next part of answer 37, which explains to us something that sets the suffering of Jesus worlds apart from every other kind of suffering. Something that sets Jesus' suffering apart from ours and puts an infinite chasm of difference between them. His suffering is totally unique because he sustained in body and soul, the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. You see, that's the heart of Jesus' suffering. All of the physical pain, everything else that we can see with our eyes, that's really just on the surface. When you get deep to the heart of it, it is this, that Jesus endured in his body and his soul all his life long, from his birth To his death, the fiery wrath of the holy God against the sins of his people. That is suffering unlike 
any other. He's our Savior by being our sin bearer. Jesus became man to take man's sin upon himself and to take the penalty that that sin deserves, which is eternal death. Jesus has no sin of his own, but he took responsibility for our sins. Not just one or two sins, but as the Catechism says, the sins of all mankind. Now, when the Catechism says that, we ought not to be frightened or disturbed, as if the reformed wheels are suddenly coming off at this point in the Catechism. No, the Catechism says that because the Bible uses that language. But when we understand how the Bible uses that language, we will understand that neither the Catechism nor Scripture is saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to suffer and to die to pay for the sins of every single human being who has ever lived. And now, whether that death of Christ profits anyone depends on the free exercise of their will to choose him. No. The Bible does say Jesus died for the world. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or think of John the Baptist's words in John 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But we understand that in the scriptures, world rarely means every single human being head for head. The scriptures teach that Jesus came into the world to save his own people who are gathered from all of the nations of the world. Every tribe, every tongue, every people. A whole assembly, a new humanity that is gathered out of the old humanity. Jesus came to save his elect, those chosen before the foundation of the world and given to him. Drawn from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every part of the world. Let's look at a few other verses in the Gospel of John to to make this clear. So that we need not fear what the Catechism says here as if the Reformed wheels are coming off when it says that Jesus suffered and died to pay for the sin of all mankind. All mankind there means the new humanity, God's elect, drawn from every nation, tribe, and tongue. First, let's look at John 6. In John 6, verse 39, Jesus makes clear that he came to suffer and die only for the elect, those whom God gave him. John 6, verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Jesus, on the last day, will raise up those whom the Father gave him, his chosen people. And Jesus would be lifted up upon the cross to pay for the sins of those whom the Father gave him. That's why in John 17, verse 9, Jesus prays only for his people. Remember, in John 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly 
his high priestly prayer the night that he is betrayed, right before he goes, he goes to Gethsemane. The cross is looming in his mind. And as Jesus looks ahead to the cross, he prays this in verse 9. I pray for them. Who are them? His disciples, but by implication, all of his chosen people. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Again, that language of those whom thou hast given me. Those are the ones that Jesus goes to the cross to suffer and to die for, to pay for their sins. Those given to him out of all mankind. Those given to him who constitute the new humanity in Jesus Christ. So a somewhat long explanation of that phrase, but an important one. The catechism here does not teach universal atonement. It fits with the reformed and biblical doctrine of limited atonement that Jesus came to suffer and die and shed his blood, as John 10 verse 11 says, for his sheep and his sheep alone. But now, let's come back to the main point that's being made. The depth and the greatness of Jesus' suffering. He assumed to himself the guilt, not just of one or two sins, but that entire mass of sin, all of the sins of all of his elect people throughout time and history. And remember, as we've learned earlier in the Catechism, that each and every individual sin is an infinite offense against the Most High Majesty of God. It incurs an infinite debt. And so as Jesus takes responsibility for all of your sins and all of my sins and all of the sins of every believer throughout time and history, he is loading upon himself infinite debt after infinite debt after infinite debt and taking responsibility to pay for that debt. That is a crushing burden we cannot even begin to comprehend. We have our burdens, and our burdens are real. Indeed, one of the heaviest burdens that we experience in this life is when we feel that burden of guilt, the guilt of sin. But Jesus carried the burden of the sins of all of his people. And Jesus bore the fiery, holy, punishing wrath of God against All of those sins. And he bore it not just when he was on the cross. Though that is where that wrath came to its fullest expression. But he bore that wrath as the catechism says. Throughout the entirety of his life. That's the world of meaning that's packed into those two words. He suffered. We cannot begin to comprehend the depths of that suffering. No man has suffered as Christ has suffered. But now lastly, to wrap up the first point, let us notice that Jesus' suffering is totally unique, not only in terms of its nature, but in terms of its purpose and its effect. And that's the last part of answer 37. 
The Catechism explains that he sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so, there's an indication of purpose. That so, by his passion, by his suffering, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Jesus' suffering, culminating with his death on the cross, was the offering of his own life as the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. And that word propitiatory means making payment. Making payment that appeases wrath, making payment that satisfies the demands of justice, making a payment that removes an offense that stands between two people, making payment that clears a debt. That's the idea of propitiatory. And so Jesus suffering the wrath of God, bearing it, and then dying upon the cross for our sins, it has appeased that holy wrath of God, stilled that wrath, cleared that pile of infinite debt, met every demand of God's law, For us, it removes the offense of our sin that has alienated us from God and made us deserving of his wrath forevermore. In sum, his death removes sin and restores us to God's favor. And there's the beautiful effect. The offering of that propitiatory sacrifice for us Restores us to the favor of God. And that propitiatory sacrifice is a sacrifice of infinite value that merits, earns, obtains for us every blessing. Summed up as the catechism puts it, righteousness and eternal life. No other sufferer can do that. No one can bear the wrath of God so as to deliver others from it, except the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ the righteous, God the Son, in our flesh, perfectly righteous. And that He has done through His suffering and death, giving Himself as the propitiatory sacrifice. He takes the holy wrath of God so as to turn it away from us, He makes the payment so that by making the payment, he might also purchase for us those blessings, favor, righteousness, eternal life. Jesus' suffering rescues his suffering people so that we have the unshakable hope Of an end to all our suffering. And that's the application to think about for a minute. He suffered, and let those words be pressed upon our hearts. He suffered so that you will not have to suffer everlastingly. 
Because all of the sufferings in this life, many they are, great they are, they are nothing to be compared to the suffering that the sinner deserves in hell. And that's where all of us would go. But he suffered. He suffered in our place. So that we will never suffer what he suffered. That wrath of God that would burn against the sinner everlastingly in hell. And justly so. He suffered that wrath in his body and in his soul to redeem your body and your soul from eternal damnation so that in your redeemed body and soul you might everlastingly enjoy the blessedness of God's favor. He suffered uniquely to put an end to all of your sufferings. And so now as Christians in this world, we live all of life in light of these words, He suffered. And these words, He suffered, give us strength and hope and comfort in the midst of our sufferings here below. Because His suffering took the wrath of God out of your sufferings. Apart from Christ, every suffering you go through in this life would be an expression of God's wrath against you, driving you towards hell. But because He suffered, There is no more wrath. There is no more condemnation. And now the sufferings of this present life are but means in the hands of our loving God to prepare us for the glory that is to be revealed. The sufferings of this present age cannot destroy you. And indeed, they are light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is ours because He suffered. And so we have hope. My sufferings won't destroy me. My sufferings are not the manifestation of God's killing wrath against me. My sufferings will come to an end and will be replaced by eternal joy and glory and relief from suffering because He suffered. Sometimes people say, how could a good God Let so many people suffer so much in this world. And our answer is, look at Jesus. Look at his cross. And that puts everything back into perspective. How could God in the flesh suffer so much for unworthy people such as you and me? When you understand those words, he suffered. See, God is good. No matter how hard this life is, no matter what sufferings He leads me through in this veil of tears, God is good. Because Jesus suffered for me. Well, that's the main point of Lord's Day 15, but Lord's Day 15 also has two more questions and answers, and each of these questions and answers focus a little bit on certain dimensions of Jesus' suffering. And so now we move from Galilee to Gabbatha. Jesus' lifelong suffering came to its head at the end of his life. At Gabbatha and then to Golgotha. In question and answer 38, 
describes for us Jesus suffering at Gabbatha. That word Gabbatha is simply a Hebrew word taken from John 19. It was the Hebrew word for the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. And that word refers to a pavement and an elevated place. That judgment hall of Pontius Pilate was a very ornate place. It had a mosaic tile floor with many different colored tiles, a pavement. And at the end of that pavement, there was an elevated dais with a judgment seat. And that's where Pontius Pilate, as the Roman governor of Judea, who was directly responsible to Caesar, that's where he would exercise his ultimate judicial authority, settling the cases that were brought before him. And so as John 19 records, after Jesus has been falsely accused at the sham trial that the Sanhedrin held the previous night, he is brought early Friday morning to Pilate because the Jews need Pilate's sanction to have Jesus executed. And Jesus then suffers under Pontius Pilate as judge. He suffers at Gabbatha. Question and answer 38 explains that to us. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? The answer, that he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we are exposed. There's an added layer to Jesus' suffering as he stood before Pontius Pilate. It's the suffering of being innocent and clearly innocent, beyond a shadow of a doubt, innocent, and yet still being condemned and being sentenced to death. That's what happened. As John 19 records for us, The Jews brought all sorts of accusations against Jesus. The other Gospels fill in the picture. He stirred up sedition among the people. He taught the people, and this was an outright lie, he taught the people not to pay tribute to Caesar. As we read in John 19, he claimed to be the Son of God, and the Jews judged that to be blasphemy. All sorts of accusations. But as Pilate hears these accusations and examines Jesus and questions Jesus, it becomes abundantly clear. This man is guilty of no wrongdoing. Pilate says that multiple times in John 19. I find no fault in this man. And there's significance in that. Publicly, before the world, it is declared, there is no fault in this man. That's the testimony of Gabbatha that speaks yet to this day. It brings to light even more the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He was not a sinner going to death for his own sins. He was innocent beyond a shadow of a doubt. No sin could be found. Even though everyone was trying to find something to pin to Jesus, nothing could stick. He was blameless. And even the unbelieving Roman judge could find nothing, nothing against the Christ of God. And yet at Gabbatha, 
on that beautiful pavement in, in Pilate's judgment hall, where justice is supposed to be done, Jesus is condemned to death and delivered over into the hands of the Jews, though clearly innocent. What suffering that was. We can get a little sense of that when we perhaps have been unfairly accused of something that we didn't do or we didn't say. That hurts. Imagine Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, being judged by sinners to be a sinner. But that's just the surface. When we get to the core of what went on here at Gabbatha, it was this. There was another sentence that was issued there at Gabbatha. Another verdict behind the unjust verdict of Pontius Pilate. And this other verdict was part, a great part of Jesus' suffering. It was the verdict of God. Behind Pilate's verdict was the sentence of the judge of heaven and earth. The sentence, guilty. Guilty. Worthy of death. And how can that be? Because that innocent man standing there on the pavement was the sin bearer. And though he had no sin, no personal sin, nothing that could be pinned to him. So that Pilate could say nothing but, I find no fault in this man. He stood there before the eyes of God as the sin bearer. Laden with the guilt of our sins. And thus the sentence from heaven was guilty and worthy of death. And that brings out the significance and the comfort For us, in Jesus' suffering at Gabbatha, there on the pavement in Pilate's judgment hall, we are given a visual, a visual of the double imputation that stands at the heart of the gospel. And that theological term, double imputation, refers to my sins being credited to Christ and Christ's innocence and obedience being credited to me. That stands at the heart of the good news. Jesus takes my sins, and Jesus clothes me in His righteousness. An oft-referred-to Bible passage is 2 Corinthians 5.21. What we're going to read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, you see it. At Gabbatha. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Answer 38. He being innocent, yet condemned, might thereby free us. From the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. Jesus' judgment by Pontius Pilate illustrates that wonder of salvation. He is condemned for my sins and goes to death 
for my sins, though he is innocent, and I, who am guilty, am set free, free from that judgment to which I was exposed, and blessed with his reward of everlasting life. Jesus suffered at Gabbatha so that you, beloved, when you stand on the pavement before the great white throne on the last day, you will hear this sentence from the mouth of God concerning you. Innocent. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. Even though in yourself you are guilty with nothing but rags, on the pavement before the great white throne, you will be declared righteous. For Christ's sake, He took your sin and clothes you in His innocence. From Gabbatha, our suffering Savior was led to Golgotha. And here we will be brief because Lord's Day 16 focuses much more closely on Golgotha. It is there on Golgotha, the hill of the skull, that Jesus finished his substitutionary suffering, his atoning work for us, his people. It was there that he sustained the wrath of God and delivered us from it. He sustained it to the very end and set it aside through the propitiatory sacrifice of his death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died for us. His death was not just a physical death. His death, see in Lord's Day 16, was the fullness of death. On the cross, he descended into hell and endured everything that death is. The fullness of hell's fury to deliver us from it. Now the focus of the last question and answer of Lord's Day 15 is on the question why Jesus died by crucifixion. Question 39 says, is there anything more to his being crucified than if he had died some other death? And the answer is, yes, for thereby I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me, for the death of the cross was accursed of God. There's special significance to Jesus dying by crucifixion. And that special significance involves much more than the fact that crucifixion was a painful form of death. Yes, it was, but that's not the main point. The main point is that crucifixion was an accursed form of death. That harkens back to Deuteronomy 21, verse 32 and following. You can read that another time. There, God identifies the hanging of a body upon a tree as a symbol of being accursed. The idea is that that person who is executed and whose body is hung upon a tree is suspended between heaven and earth, rejected by both, and that person bears their sin. And that's the idea of the cross. Jesus, suspended between heaven and earth, rejected of both, 
bore the sin of his people and he bore the curse. The curse, which is God's word of judgment that executes the death penalty upon the sinner. God's curse is his word of wrath that drives the sinner to hell. And that curse, which fell upon sinful mankind, which otherwise would have laid upon you and me, was laid upon Jesus. And the cross shows us that. By his death on the cross, he took that curse. As Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So that you, believer, will never be accursed. That killing word of wrath and judgment that hounds and pursues and will infallibly drive the unbelieving sinner into hell, that word of wrath was taken and borne by Jesus. And now the word of God that pursues you all the days of your life is his word of blessing. The word that pursues you and ferries you to heaven. On Golgotha, we see what we deserve. On Golgotha, Jesus paid the price, bore the curse, so that that killing word of wrath no longer hangs over you. And that's why the cross, that ugly instrument of cruel execution, is such a beautiful sign to believers. Because when we see that cross, we see the testimony, the curse is gone. That's why we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. That accursed tree has become our tree of life. The fruits of which bring us life eternal. Jesus suffered. As we Think about all that that means. Let our hearts fill with joy and thanksgiving. He suffered that I may live forever. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that through this word, which can only scratch the surface of the subject we have considered, that through this word about Jesus' suffering, we might see more deeply into thy goodness and thy graciousness towards us. Grant that this word may lift our souls with joy, because it is a word that testifies to us the liberty that we have from sin and from death and from punishment through Jesus Christ. May it also strengthen us to bear our sufferings, knowing that the Christ who suffered for us has put them to an end and has obtained for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen.